The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. I would encourage you to open your Bibles, if you have them today, to, to Romans chapter 10. If this is your first time here, um, we are in the middle of the book of Romans together. We've been doing this since the beginning of August, so I thought this would be a good time um, to kind of catch, catch you up on where we're at. So Romans chapters 1 to 4 uh, tell us about the reality of humanity. Each one of us are separated from God um, because of our own sins, because of our sinful thoughts and our words and our deeds. That's why we're separated from God. And this, this is a choice that we've made. And what God has done, according to Romans chapters 1 through 4, is God has made himself available to us in a multitude of ways. So despite our rejection of God, despite our ignoring of who God is, God continues to make himself available to us. God continues to make himself known to us so that he is not far from us. And strangely, even though God continues to make himself available to us, each and every one of us would rather pursue things other than God. Despite his goodness being reflected in so many different ways, the reality of it is the vast majority of us just don't want anything to do with God. We continue to sin. And where does that leave us? Well, at the end of chapter 4, there's this, there's this escape clause And what the escape clause is, is that Jesus was handed over to die for our sins. So the way out of this mess that we, that we know, we don't just find ourselves in, right? But the way out of the mess that we perpetually put ourselves into is through Jesus. Jesus is the savior and he was raised to life to make us righteous with God. And then chapters five to eight, they tell us what that righteousness means, They tell us what that righteousness is good for. They they tell us the reality of the new life. And it's empowered not by ourselves, but it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when we make this this transition from from non-believer, from unrighteous to follower of Christ to righteous, what happens is God gives us the Holy Spirit to live within us and gives us the ability to be obedient to him. And that Holy Spirit who's dwelling within each one of us as believers knows so much about us. This is really good news. The Holy Spirit of God knows so much about us that he can go to God on our behalf and tell God exactly what we need. He can speak to God where we are unable, when we are unable to speak to God, when we are unsure of what we should ask for, the Holy Spirit can go to God because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and tell God exactly what it is that we want, exactly what it is that we need. And this is, again, this is good news. So what happens when people respond differently to this? What happens when we reject this? How does God respond in the midst of our sins? See, when we would rather go back and live our old sinful ways, what happens? Well, that's chapters 9 to 11. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's walking us through like the salvation process. He's continually revealing to us the reality of who God is. 
And last week in chapter 9, we talked about the way that God constantly revealed himself to the Jewish people, to his people. We can read through the Old Testament and we can see all of those ways. And Paul is constantly reminding them. And what they failed to understand was that there was a way to be right with God and they continually chose a different way. They pursued a different path. And this, this rejection by the Jews of God's people caused Paul to feel something inside of himself. Because these, these are his brothers, these are his sisters, these are, these are his ethnic group. He was one of them. And, and what it said last week, we read this in chapter 9, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. Then he goes one step further. He says, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. And this is amazing that someone would rather not be saved, that someone would give up their salvation in the hopes that someone would come to a relationship with God. And so what God does is God has finally revealed himself in the ultimate manifestation in the person of Jesus. So as we're, as we're reading through the book of Romans, that's kind of where we are in the story, is the Jewish people have Jesus, and they are rejecting him as well. And Paul is filled with sorrow, and he's filled with grief over his people, because this is it. This is the last, this is the last chance. There is no, actually, that's plan A. Sometimes we think of like the Old Testament rules and regulations that that was plan A and that didn't work. So God had to come up with something else. So Jesus is plan B. No, actually, Jesus is plan A. Jesus is actually the only plan. And see, Paul knows this. And he knows that as time passes and and his brothers and sisters continue to reject Jesus, he knows there's going to be a time that comes when they're not going to be able to reject anymore. They're going to leave this earth. There's not going to be another opportunity for them to make that choice. So he's filled with grief and sorrow. But he does pass along the same gospel to the Gentiles. See, when the Jews reject what God is doing, God then just moves along to the Gentiles, makes the message available to the Gentiles. And that too is also not a plan B because that was God's plan all along. God's covenant to Abraham was about people of all nations, tribe, and tongues. So what Paul is doing here in the book of Romans is he's, he's reorienting us around what it means to be a person of God. He's reorienting us around what it means to be a true Israelite. When Paul talks about Israel in these chapters, he's not just talking about the Jewish people, the the biological Jewish people, the ethnic Jewish people. He's starting to expand that to mean all of the people of God, Jews and Gentiles. And if you remember this, he wrote, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. See, this is an expansion of God's kingdom. It's not just confined to a geographical location of Jerusalem or to a geographical location of the Middle East. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. But what about 
what happens with the Jews? As the Gentiles are coming in, what about them? What does saving faith look like? Because that's, that's how you enter into this new kingdom. It's not by rules. It's not by laws. It's by saving faith. And as Paul has done so well in his letter, it often leads us with, leaves us with questions. He's geared his letter in this way. Because at least the law is something tangible, right? When I have... When I have 613 laws as a Jewish person, I know which ones I'm following and which ones I'm not. If I, if I have 10 commandments, I know which ones I'm following and I know which ones I'm not. So that's very tangible. But the life that the Holy Spirit offers us is not that, is not about laws. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. There's something else going on. God is after our heart. A few days ago, I saw this. I've been seeing this ad pop up on, on Facebook, and I, I, I shared something about it on my Facebook post, um, on my Facebook page the other day. Um, there's this phone that looks an awful lot like a smartphone, but it's like a dumb smartphone. And it has like four things that it can do. It can talk, it can text, it has a map on it, and I don't remember what the fourth one was. And I thought to myself, man, I would love to have that phone, but it doesn't work on Verizon Network. Like, I would love to have that phone where I could do only four things. Well, then one of my friends who, uh, who, was, a, who was in youth ministry with us when we lived in Chicago said, well, you know you can just delete all the apps off your iPhone, right? And she is right. Um, but this, like, this is sort of a theological thing. So what I wrote on that post, I said, yeah, but, you know, I would rather have, because I'm a sinner, and because I'm someone whose heart has yet to be fully transformed, I would rather have some device that keeps me from doing that. Like, isn't that you? Like, I want a phone to give me a law so I can't violate it. Does it make sense? And see, what God is after is a heart of self-control. Because if I had self-control, and if I really only wanted four apps on my phone, I know exactly what I could do. This is God, like this is God working in us, revealing to us that, that even, if we had, like, even if we had the law, it still doesn't fix what's wrong with my heart. Because I would have that phone but as I'm thinking about getting that phone, I'm also thinking about keeping my iPhone because then I can do all the other things that that, that phone's not going to be able to do. Right? We're just, we're, just so, we're just so wicked. There's something fundamentally wrong with, maybe it's not you. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. And that fundamental problem is sin. And Jesus has come Jesus has come to fix that. So what does saving faith mean? Well, this is, this is Romans 10. This is what we're going to talk about today. The first 13 verses of Romans chapter 10 talk about what saving faith is. The next several verses talk about how that message gets out. And then the final part of chapter 10 this morning um, tells us that there are only two responses. There's two choices. Let's talk through Romans 10, verses 1 to 13 uh, together. 
Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Now that sounds a lot like what we read last week, doesn't it? Picks up right where Paul left off at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. See, Paul longs that his brothers and sisters would know the reality of who Jesus is. It's his desire. Verses 2 and 3 say this. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. These verses tell us something so incredibly simple, yet so incredibly profound. See, there's a way to be zealous for God and misunderstand who he is. There's a way to be zealous for God and misunderstand his righteousness. There's a way to pursue God and chase after God and want to be in relationship with God and completely miss the story. See, even though Christ is near to us, we we might miss him. We might miss him. This is a choice. As we were talking about this, what I love about this part of Romans chapter 10 is Paul's not speaking hypothetically here. Paul isn't talking about just those Jews who have yet to make the transition. What he's doing is he's, he's reaching into his not-so-distant past. Because if you know the story of Paul, you know that his, he was once known as Saul. And years earlier, he was a tremendous persecutor of the church of Christ. In fact, when, when, the, when the first Christian martyr, Stephen was killed, the coats of the men who who were throwing the rocks at Stephen were laid at Saul's feet. See, Paul was, Saul was present for that moment. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, it says this, Paul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest He requested letters addressed to the synagogue in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the address of any, in the arrest of any of the followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. See, Paul was was a demonstration of misdirected zeal for God. This is Paul's story, this is Paul's history. Paul was a Pharisee. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read that he says, I was, the, I was a Jew among Jews, and I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like, I had everything I could ever want. Like, I was the man. And he was misdirected in his zeal. Before Paul was converted on this trip, he was filled with self-righteous enthusiasm at murdering those who were becoming followers of Christ. He was so dedicated to the law that any violation of it warranted death. And he was on his way to Damascus to bring those Christians back, to bring those converts back so that they could be an example to everyone who might convert. See, a relationship with God, 
ought to fill us with sorrow and grief over those who don't know him. But Paul, in his misdirected zeal, was filled with anger and hatred and bitterness. And I think this is a lesson for us. As we think about those that we, maybe we know, but especially those we don't know who are not followers of Christ, our motivation, our heart for them ought to be sorrow and grief, not anger and bitterness. Ought not be frustration that they just don't get it. Because there's not too many, there's not, I don't think there's a lot of spaces between where Paul was and where we are. In our anger and our bitterness over people who sin differently than us, who make choices differently than us, who we think are ruining our culture and ruining our nation. See, the pathway is sorrow. And this is Paul's story. And it said Paul was converted to Christianity on the way to Damascus. In a moment, Paul met Jesus. He had the Spirit fill his life and was completely changed. And went from angry and bitter to filled with grief and sorrowful. What Paul is telling us is, is those Christians who are, who are f- clinging to their old ways who think that their self-righteous morality is going to save them, who think that their biological connection to the past is going to save them. He's telling them it doesn't work that way. See, Jesus has already fulfilled the law. So my Jewish brothers and sisters, what you can do is you can, you can set aside those 613 laws. You don't have to keep them anymore. Well, they couldn't keep them anyway. You don't have to try to keep them anymore. You don't have to make any effort to keep them as a means to salvation because Jesus has already kept the law. Jesus has already fulfilled the law. And I love the contrast in the next few verses. This is verses five and six. He says, for Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. That's a paraphrase to Leviticus 18.5. Moses said, if you want salvation, if you want righteousness with God, you have to follow the law. But listen to verse 6. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth? And don't go down to the earth. Who will go down to the place of the dead to bring back Christ to life again? In fact, it says the message is very close at hand and it is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. So this is where we have to pause. This is one of those times because we read something and we don't really know what what it's talking about. Like this, this saying, who will go down to the place of the dead? Who will go up to heaven? Where does that, where does that come from? My first thought was like, that was just a, that was a, a saying that they had. Well, then I studied a little bit deeper, and it actually goes back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30. 
If you're familiar with the Bible, Deuteronomy is the last book of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch. That's a Christian, a Christian word that we give that is the Pentateuch, and that's not even a Christian word. It's a Jewish concept. It's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. And the people have left Egypt. They've wandered the desert for 40 years. They're about to enter into the promised land. They're about to have the thing that they have wanted to have for more than 400 years when they were enslaved. They're about to have the one thing that God has promised to his people. And Moses is approaching death, so he, he pauses and he reminds the Jewish people of all of the things that God had told them. He reminds them of the law. He reminds them of all the things that they had experienced. And then he says this, and this is in Deuteronomy chapter 29. He says, by entering into the promised land, by choosing to go into the promised land, here's what you're doing. You are agreeing with the covenant. You are saying, by crossing the Jordan River into the promised land, Jewish brothers and sisters, You are saying by crossing into the promised land, God, we agree. We're going to keep all the rules. We're going to keep all your regulations. We're going to be your people. This is who we want to be. And then, because he knows reality, he tells them that they're eventually going to be disobedient. Can you imagine hearing that? Right? You get all excited, all pumped up to cross into the Jordan. And then Moses says, But you're going to be disobedient. Eventually, you're going to be exiled. Why? The people abandoned their covenant with the Lord, the God of their ancestors, made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's the end of chapter 29 in Deuteronomy. But chapter 30 is a chapter of hope. If they return to the Lord, they'll return to their land and God will change their heart. This is, there, this is from Deuteronomy. This command, obey God, I'm giving you today, is not too difficult for you, and it is not beyond your reach. I wonder if this sounds familiar to what we've been reading in the book of Romans. See, because we have the Holy Spirit, we can choose to be obedient to God. You can choose it. We talked about that last week. Every single one of us in the room for the last hour has been on your best behavior Whatever your besetting sin is, there's a pretty good chance you haven't done it in the last hour. You have the capacity to be obedient to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what what Moses is telling the people. It, this command, is not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask, who will go up to heaven and bring it down so we can hear it and obey? It is not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask who will cross the sea to bring it to us so we can hear it and obey. No, this message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so you can obey it. See, we're not, we don't have to obey some distant set of rules and laws. We, what Moses was telling the people about that a day was going to come where your hearts are going to be changed. That's today. Did you know that? Did you know that by having the Holy Spirit inside of you, that you're a changed person? That you're a new person? Did you know that you don't have to expend 
hardly any energy to find God. You don't have to go chase him down. You don't have to go up to heaven to find him. You don't have to go down into the pit to find him. He's here. He's living inside of you. He is with you. And this is Paul's message. This is verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, all the work, all the work for salvation, all of it, not 99.9%, not 99.99999 infinity percent, 100% of the work of your salvation of your righteousness, 100%, all of it has been done by God. All of it. And all we have to do is demonstrate saving faith. That's all we have to do. We do this faithfully when our life reflects our belief. What does this mean? To live like we believe. I'm trying to think of an analogy for this over the past few days. And, and this is the best one I have. And like Paul's analogies in Romans, they all fall short at some time, but this is just the best one I have. I think of when I wake up in the morning and I walk over to a light switch and I flip it on. I am operating out of 100% belief that that light is going to turn on when I flip it on. I'm acting like it's just going to turn on. I have no idea what's going on at the power station or the wires or what's going on in my garage with the fuse box. Like, I don't know how any of that stuff works. But I have full confidence that I'm going to walk over and I'm going to flip the light switch on and it's going to come on. And you know what happens when it doesn't come on? What do we all do when it doesn't come on? We flip it off and we flip it back on again, right? Like it's so ingrained in us, it's so ingrained in us that we're going to flip the light switch and it's going to come on. I think that is, again, this is, falls apart. I think that's, like that's saving faith. Like I just know it's going to be on. And then when it's not, I don't know what to do. But that is saving faith. To live like I believe it. To walk over that full confidence that I'm going to flip that light switch on and it's going to be on. Full confidence. No guesswork. No wondering. Last week in our pastor review, Joe said, is it really belief if nothing is different? See, I think that's a great question for us to ask. Do we really have saving faith in our lives if nothing is different? If we just keep doing the same old things that we've always done. We keep making the same choices that we've always made. We keep living the same life that we've always lived. Nothing has changed. Is it really saving faith if nothing has changed? See, saving faith is an active belief. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read that faith without deeds leads to death. And I would say if your faith does not lead to deeds that honor God, I would argue that you don't actually have saving faith. I think you're living in a false assurance. 
You've tricked yourself into thinking that you have faith. But if nothing's different, we don't. See, if the Jews that Paul is speaking to had had saving faith, they would cast aside their need to keep the law. It would be evidenced by their lives because saving faith leads to something. I love the next verse. Paul writes this. This is chapter, this is verse 12. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. See, we should know that there's not one way of salvation for the Jew and a different way for the Gentile. Last week we said there's, there's not going to be a Westway Christian Church section in heaven. There's not going to be a Jewish section in heaven. Well, they got here by keeping the law. There's not going to be a Gentile section in heaven. Well, they got here by having saving faith. No, there's one section in heaven. And the way you get there is by saving faith in what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the way of salvation. Everyone who calls on him will be saved. This is good news. See, because then, then I don't have to figure out what the alternative way is. Because if I'm not a Jew and they're getting in by the law, well, how do I get in? What do I have to do? What special thing do I have to do? What hoops do I have to jump through? None. I just have to confess Jesus. This is verse 14. But how can they call on him to save him unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. See, this is how the message of saving faith goes out. It's us. It's us. It's through us. It's through our words. It's through our deeds. It's through the saving faith that we demonstrate so that other people see it. This is, this is why we openly declare our faith in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. This is, this is why we do this. This is what it means to believe, to live a demonstration of the changed life. I have this saving faith, so now I'm going to do something different. I'm going to point other people to God. The things I do, the things I say, are going to point other people to God. My life, my mission, my purpose is about pointing other people to God. I would say that that's the ultimate demonstration of saving faith. I would say if you're living your life not in a demonstration of pointing other people to God, I would say that you might have a false assurance of salvation. You might not know what it means to be a Christian. You might not be a Christian. Because you, you haven't acted upon this faith. And, and that doesn't mean being perfect. And we've talked about this so many times, right? Like what happens when I do the things I don't want to do and I don't, the things I want to do, I don't? Like what happens? I feel tension. I recognize I'm still a sinner, that there's something still being worked out in me. And there's no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus Christ. So that's good news. So maybe, maybe you, maybe I have been living my life that, that, where the action of saving faith has not been revealed. Maybe I haven't demonstrated it faithfully. Maybe that's you, maybe that's me. Maybe all the opportunities we've had to tell our people about Jesus, we haven't taken advantage of them. 
and we feel badly about that. Here's the really good news. All you, God knows all you have to do is repent of it and then tell the next person you meet about Jesus. You just have to start demonstrating it. That's it. It's easy. It's simple. We don't want to fall for the same old sins that used to captivate us. We don't want to live with the misdirected zeal that says, if we can just get the right person into the right office, we're going we're gonna to fix this whole thing. See, that would be misdirected zeal. That would be a misdirected focus. The answer is living out our faith. We're to be different because of the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. This isn't just a thing for, this isn't just a thing for pastors. This isn't just a thing for missionaries. We watch that video and we're so, like, we're so encouraged. Man, 700 kids, that would be awesome. There are probably 700 kids who live in Scotts Bluff who don't know Jesus. There's probably four times that who don't know who Jesus is. What if we collectively decided that that was just unacceptable? What if we were filled with sorrow and grief over those who didn't know Jesus? And we made the decision that it was our mission and our purpose in life to demonstrate saving faith by sharing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what's on our wall in the lobby. To proclaim Jesus as Lord. To grow in our unity, purpose, and love through the power of the Holy Spirit so the people of Scottsbluff County know Jesus. I mean, that's just what we're about. What would that be like for us? And then there's a reality. And one of the things that I just so much love about the Bible is that it's a real book. It doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't, doesn't paint some rosy scenario where if we just go out and we just tell people the gospel, like everyone's going to become a Christian, like wouldn't that just be wonderful? It would be great. The Bible is real. Paul writes this. But not everyone welcomes the good news. See, there are going to be some people who don't accept the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message. See, this is a real, this is a real heartbreaker for me. Because there are people that I've shared the gospel with for years who've rejected the message. Who've turned their backs on it. There are people that I've talked about for years who, who have settled, and, I'm, and now I'm talking about Christians. There are people I've, I've talked to for years who've settled for misdirected zeal. Who focused on the wrong things. Who've settled for rules and regulations. There are Christians I've talked to for years who've settled for empty morality and self-righteousness. It, like, it's, it's bone-crushing. 
And for those of you who have shared the gospel with other people and faced rejection, you know exactly what that's like. And what Paul is talking about here is his Jewish brothers and sisters. And this kind of makes him wonder, like, well, what if, what if I didn't really tell the message properly? Maybe you thought that. See, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to walk us through the human condition. We share the gospel with somebody, they don't respond, and then we start getting self-reflective, right? Well, what if, what if I didn't tell the right story? What if, as Paul says, writes, but did they actually hear the message? And Paul answers, he says, yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth, the words to all the world. And I wonder if you remember Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So have people heard the message? There have been times, I'm sure, where I have not been clear. There have been times, I'm sure, where you have not been clear. But Romans 1 is telling us something that God is never unclear. At the most basic level, people can know the reality of who God is through creation. So it's not that they haven't heard it. And then Paul's next question that we ask ourselves, and this is just so awesome, but I ask, did they really understand? And again, this is where my own thoughts and fears of self-doubt creep into my soul. You know, on a Sunday morning, maybe we just, maybe we just spend too much time reading all these verses. This is my fear This is my self-doubt that creeps in. Maybe we just spend too much time reading all of this. Maybe we're not being clear. Maybe they don't really understand. And I feel this, and this is times where, where what I do feels purposeless. Watching people over and over make the same mistakes, it kind of sounds like the Old Testament. And initially being frustrated, but then remembering that God's response is grace and mercy. And then I remember all the 82 million times that I've sinned in my life. And God's response to me is grace and mercy and love. It's not that I haven't heard the message. It's not that I haven't understood the message. Because far too often I have rejected the message. And Paul answers his own question. This is verse 19. He says, yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by a people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. See, here's... Here's the proof that the message is both heard and understood by somebody. Here's here's the proof. The Gentiles are hearing it. Jewish people, we're sharing the same gospel, and the Gentiles are hearing it. 
We're sharing the same message and somebody's responding. So it can't be that we're not telling the message and it can't be that we're not clear because someone is responding. And I, I experience that almost on a weekly basis. I have somebody, I have somebody tell me that, um, that their life has been transformed because what we do each week is we read 80 million verses of Scripture. And then we stop in the middle of the 80 million verses that we're really reading and we go back and read another 80 million from the Old Testament. And what I hear people tell me is, is, is they've never, they're hearing from God in a way that they haven't experienced in the past. Because Scripture is changing them. Scripture is transforming them. And they're encouraged and they're excited about it. And honestly, it makes me want to just keep reading 82 million verses every Sunday. And Paul is going to talk more about this in chapter 11 and so are we. But something, something really strange happens when the people that the Jews deemed unworthy responded to God. Something really awkward happens. It's, it's hinted at here. It says that it infuriated the Jewish people and it made them jealous. That's really strange, isn't it? Imagine being angry or jealous because sinners were learning and growing in ways that you weren't. Imagine being frustrated because other people were receiving attention from God that you thought was owed you. See, I think the reason that they were angry and jealous is because they were living lives of misdirected zeal. I think the reason that they were angry and jealous is because they didn't understand God's way of making people right with himself. I think it made them angry and jealous because they were clinging to their own way of getting right with God rather than trusting God. And what they found in doing that was selfishness and division. Their refusal to accept what God was doing was creating selfishness and division within the body. Paul uses the words of Isaiah, All day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. See, the Jews weren't left out of anything. They weren't ignored by God, but they did choose to ignore God. They choose, chose to ignore what he was doing. So we're at the end of 10, and every week we have this time to reflect and a time of decision. And today what I thought we would do is just let, just let the Bible speak. You heard this earlier. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20. Now listen. Today, I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. 
For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen and you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today, I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now, I call on heaven and earth to witness this choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's pray. Father, we are before you today with a choice. with the ability to follow you. With the ability, with the awareness of who you are. With the awareness of who we are. God, I pray that each one of us, starting with, starting with me, would choose life. Would choose hope would choose freedom, would choose what you offer. Let none of us say that we didn't hear. Let none of us say that we didn't understand. Let none of us say that we reject you. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.